listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. I'd like to begin our time by asking a few questions that could absolutely set the stage for what could be one of the most transforming messages of your life. And if your answer is yes to any or all of these questions, I'd like you to applaud loudly and even raise your voice. It helps those who are listening by radio. It helps those who are listening by podcast. So are you ready? Let me ask that question first. Are you ready to respond to the questions that I'm going to ask if your answer is yes? Okay. Here we go. Do you want your life, your family, and this church to glorify God more than you ever have, than we ever have up to this point in our lives together? Is your answer yes to that? Number two, when you come to the end of your life, do you want to be able to look back and say that the glory of God was manifest in increasingly unhindered ways in your life, in your family, in this church, and in our nation? What's your answer to that? Number three, when you read the pages of the Bible, Do you find that the ways that you find Christians living within its pages often seems to be different than the way we are living today in 21st century America? Do you find a discrepancy often? Well, I want us to be aware of three dangers to the powerful, unhindered movement of God in our individual lives in our families, in our churches, and in this nation. The first error is to confuse knowledge with power. Happens all the time. You've heard it said, knowledge is power. No, knowledge is simply the opportunity for power. It takes the strategic use of knowledge to get to the point to where power is manifest. So number one, do not confuse knowledge with power. Number two, to mistake education for application. The purpose today is not to cram more information into your cranium, into my cranium, to get more Bible into our heads, because that is not necessarily in and of itself going to bring about a transformation in your life, a transformation in your family, a transformation in this church, and certainly not a transformation in the nation. So the second error that you can make is to confuse education with application. It is the application of God's word that brings about the transformation. The third thing that I want you to be aware of, the error that you need to be aware of, is to think that devotions are the same as devotion. You could make the mistake of thinking devotions are the same as devotion. You need to be aware of those three errors to confuse knowledge with power, to mistake education for application, and thirdly, to make the terrible mistake, to confuse devotions with devotion. 
Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter two, verses 42 through 47. You thought we were done with this section. No, we're just beginning to scratch the surface. The first two chapters of the book of Acts are strategically important for the rest of the book of Acts. And that's why we've taken our good old time to allow ourselves to marinate and to be saturated in the word of God as we conclude Acts chapter two today. As you begin Acts chapter two in your own life, absolutely important to make sure that we're taking time to let the word of God get into us so that the life of Jesus comes out of us. So here we are again in Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It's important to understand that it is through the apostles that the signs and wonders are happening. Not all of the believers, the 3,000 believers. It is particularly important to understand that the signs and wonders are happening through the apostles. Many people get off on rabbit trails expecting the same things to happen in their lives individually because they are members of the nighttime Bible reading society. It's as if they are reading the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, and one eye closed. If we were to do that, we would misinterpret passages of Scripture. We would misapply. And many people do that when it comes to signs and wonders. The signs and wonders are being done through the apostles. It's important to understand that. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is Christianity, not socialism. This is Christianity, not socialism. Socialism is Christianity without the power of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Socialism leads to enslavement. A growing number of millennials, 35 years old and younger, a growing number of millennials are in love, they're infatuated with socialism. Socialism leads to enslavement. Give your money to the government and have the government determine where it goes. Where is your heart? Where is your mind for the kingdom agenda of Almighty God? If you want to give your money away to those who are needy, the way we see in the book of Acts, then by all means, give your money away personally, individually to those who are needy. You will get a higher return on the dollar as opposed to ending up being pennies on the dollar by the time somebody at a government level ends up squandering God's money that he gave to you. And it is time that we in the church make a very clear distinction in this day and age where the two are being confused. If you are a person who is becoming infatuated with socialism, you don't understand your Bible, you don't understand what God wants to do at a heart level, in your own life, at a mind level, you don't understand that you have tremendous power to use the resources that God has given you. We have tremendous authority as the body of Christ to pool our resources, to behave as they are behaving in the book of Acts, and to share our possessions and to give to those who have needs. It's Christianity, not socialism. And when God's people come together in humility, that results in unity, which results in selflessness, 
all the needs of God's people get taken care of. And you know what? People become convinced that this Jesus stuff is really true. It's about Jesus, not the government. It's not about socialism. It's about Christianity. Come on, church. We need to be serious about Jesus. More serious about Jesus than we've ever been at any other time in our lives. We're not interested. We should not be interested in a form of godliness without the power of God. If we understood the truth that education is not the same as application in the body of Christ, we would have had multiple spiritual awakenings in this nation already by this time. With all of the Bible teaching churches we have and all of the Bible colleges and all of the seminaries and all of the radio programs and all of the authors who are writing books who are pastors, the problem is we think that information is the same as application and it's not. It is not, it is not, it is not. All the believers had everything in common, selling their possessions, giving to anyone as he had need because they were filled with the Holy Spirit and consumed with the Lord Jesus Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit, consumed with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. Verse 45, selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple. Christianity began as believers who were still adhered to Judaism. They simply had accepted Jesus as the spoken, promised Messiah in the Old Testament. They didn't divorce themselves from the temples. We're going to see even in Acts chapter 3, They're going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is a healthy church. This is a growing church. This is a group of people, a community of worshipers who are Humble, they're unified, and they are effective. They're humble, they're unified, and they are effective. Now, people have debated this. They're debating it now. You might be thinking about it now. Well, is the book of Acts descriptive or prescriptive? Is it descriptive or prescriptive? And we do this often in the Western world. We live in an an either-or situation, a black-and-white society. And no racial pun is intended by that. We often live our lives in extremes. Well, the Bible is either descriptive, it's just merely conveying what actually took place there, or it is prescriptive, not simply just describing what we are encountering there, what we're reading about in history, but it's also helping us understand what life should be like And oftentimes, never the two shall meet. We can't reconcile, we can't resolve. Well, the difference between a Bible passage and a historical passage being descriptive about what actually happened then and what parts of that are prescriptive that we should expect in our own lives. And that's typical how we think as Westerners, where people in the Near East, the culture in which the Bible was written, they didn't live in that either or. 
It was more holistic. It was more comprehensive. And we would do well to adapt the same perspective. Certainly, there are descriptive things in the Bible that we cannot and should not expect to be replicated today. However, be very careful that you don't and I don't, that we don't explain away what God did indeed mean to be not only descriptive but also prescriptive. Because we tend to look at a passage of Scripture like this, And we wax eloquent, we get all sniffly, get all emotional. Oh, look at how the church was. So beautiful. So unlike what we experience today, if only, if only we had a fellowship like that. (laughs) Oh, well, that's what it was like then. But this is now. As I check my email on my smartphone, that's dumbed me down. As I engage in the virtual world, missing the real world that's happening in real time all around me. And as we cry uncle and we give up on the dream that we should never give up upon, the dream of being part of a community characterized by humility and unity that ends up being an effective powerhouse of a witness for Jesus Christ. The only thing that God asked you to give up on was the pursuit of your own life and your own ambitions. And living your life with that me, myself, and I perspective that we all have before we come to know Jesus as our Savior. This is Christianity, not socialism. This is what the power of God looks like in a community of unity. By the way, a community that became unified as a result of their humility. It's been said, it's amazing what can be accomplished when you don't care who gets the credit. I like to say it this way. It's amazing what can be accomplished when we only care that Jesus gets the credit. How our lives and our families, our churches, how this nation would be fundamentally transformed if we became enamored with Jesus the way we see the early church being enamored with Jesus. The kingdom of God had come to earth and they were all in for Jesus. They were attached to Jesus. They were attached to Jesus. I don't think this is just merely descriptive. I think it's also prescriptive. Look at the things that they were doing together. Verse 42, they devoted themselves. We're gonna look at that word devoted in more detail in just a moment. But they were devoting themselves to four things in particular, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Let's go into the center of that sandwich just for a moment. We'll get to the bread in just a moment. But the center of that sandwich, the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And we can look at a passage of scripture like this and immediately apply it to the church, how the church needs to be characterized by apostolic preaching, preaching of the word of God, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, Meals together, that kind of fellowship. A lot of Jesus' teaching, think about the Last Supper, one of the most significant of all of his teachings, happening at a meal where the object lessons were provided. Oftentimes, that's what we tend to have forgotten today, the idea of fellowship and meals. You're probably, even as I'm saying that, thinking, yeah, there used to be a day. I don't tend to have that time with my wife, with my husband, with my children, with my parents. You understand what I'm saying? Our individualistic society has ravished relationships in a very deep and dark way. It's time that we take them back. 
It's time that we take back those relationships by taking back dinner time and fellowship together. Your smartphone was not invited to the dinner table. Got mine right here in my back pocket. You probably have yours attached to you. My smartphone was not invited to the dinner table. It is an unwelcomed guest. And oftentimes I am tempted to welcome what should not be welcome at the dinner table. Fellowship, breaking of bread, getting together, spending time together, listening to each other, talking to each other. Oftentimes we can look at these four components, the apostolic teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers in the context of the church, but they're not happening in our individual lives. They're not happening in our families. And so no wonder when we get together as a church, we don't experience these together as a church because we haven't been experiencing them together as a family because we haven't been prioritizing them individually in our own lives. You know, I hear this all the time when it comes to couples events, marriage events. We had one here recently. You need to pray together as a couple. You need to pray together as a couple. I've got news for you. Listen, I'm gonna burst your bubble for a moment. You're not going to pray together as a couple if you're not praying individually. It's not going to happen. And if you're not praying individually, when you try to pray together as a couple, it's going to be flat, boring, distracting, and frustrating. Iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. It's biblical. It's scriptural. If you want your prayer time together as a couple to be something meaningful and significant, start with your own prayer life, with your own time with the Lord, in the Lord, in his word. It's a fallacy to think that all I need to do or one of the main things I need to do is to pray more with my spouse if we are not pursuing Jesus, if we're not attached to Jesus individually. The greatest gift that you can bring to your prayer life with your spouse and marital intimacy is personal intimacy with God. If you will be a person who personally draws near to God, it will be like a hot knife through warm butter when it comes to praying together as a couple. And by the way, that's what happens in a church. The prayer meeting of a church should be the most well-attended, most vibrant, exciting time in all of the activities that a church participates. And I thank God that we're beginning to realize that as a church with our pre-service prayer time at 8.30 in room 200 and our pre-service prayer time at 10.30 right here, right here before the second service starts. I thank God for that. You don't have to come to it every Sunday But I do encourage you, I challenge you. In fact, let's cut to the chase. I triple dog dare you. Pick one Sunday a month. One, you've got four, sometimes five in a month. Pick one of them and show up at 8.30 in room 200, or if you come to the second service, 10.30, right here in the auditorium and call out to God. And that will fire you up because you will be with other people who have not arrived, but we're on a journey together. We are on a journey together. This thing that they were doing in Acts chapter two, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, current expression of that, apostolic teaching. We have that in the epistles that comprise the New Testament. Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, all these books of the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 
We have all of these things that are the teachings of the apostles, the interpretation of those who walked and talked with Jesus of the Old Testament, the interpretation of the Old Testament by those who were eyewitnesses to the teachings, the miracles, the death, burial, and resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Their teaching. We need to land this plane that's often circling at the 50,000 foot level. We don't just want to talk about the glory days of the church, the apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. In your individual life, that needs to be happening. In your family life, it needs to be happening. In our church, it needs to be happening. You know, the nation is just the accumulation of all the individual churches throughout the nation. Every church is simply the compilation of all the individual families and all the individuals that make up that church. And so if you see a church that is on fire for God in their prayer meeting, it means that people are becoming more on fire for God in their individual lives and in their families. And so when we get together as a group, we're doing the same thing in mass that we're doing individually. So we'll bring it back to the family and you as a couple the greatest gift that you can bring to your relationship with your spouse, you want to talk about marital intimacy, be a person who's intimate with Jesus Christ in prayer. And then when you want to get together with your spouse to pray together as a couple, which you should be doing, you will find that your prayer times as couples, and can I even allude to this? Your times outside of prayer. And I'm not talking about in the kitchen either might even heat up a little bit. But if you want to just try to have a prescriptive approach to your marriage and just focus on your prayer life as a couple and miss the point of individual intimacy with Jesus Christ. The reason why they were doing this collectively as a community of unity in Acts chapter two is because they were also learning to do it individually being dedicated to this understanding that Jesus is the promised, anointed, and appointed, the Messiah spoken up in the Old Testament. They were fellowshipping together. They were breaking bread together, having meals together, and they were praying. We see Peter in Acts chapter three. Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. We don't see the rest of them going there, but we see Peter and John going up to the temple. There must be an individual commitment in your life to apostolic teaching, to fellowshipping with other believers, to slowing everything down, making sure that distractions are eliminated or at least minimized so you can get to the meat and potatoes of going deeper with God by rubbing shoulders with other people. And you've got to be a person who prioritizes intimacy with God. I found in my own life, you'll find it too, that oftentimes my fear of people is a byproduct of losing intimacy with God. It's true. This is one of the things that's systemic in our culture, in America. We're afraid to stand up and speak out about the things that we should be standing up and speaking out about. Do you know why we're afraid to do that? Because we're not walking intimately with God. Intimacy with God results in tremendous courage before people. We have enough people in this room right here to change this whole nation. But before we start thinking about the nation, let's think about the church. 
this church needs to undergo a fundamental revolution. We need to become, more than ever, a house of prayer for all nations. In your family, your family needs to become a furnace of prayer where you are trusting God. Prayer equals dependence upon God. How do you know whether or not your person is dependent upon God? Look at your prayer life. We walk by faith, not by sight. How do you know whether or not your family is really dependent upon God? What are you trusting God for that's biblical? Be careful you don't get ahead of God and begin to trust him for things he never promised you. Don't put words in God's mouth. Let the words that came out of God's mouth, the word of God, let them be treasured in your heart so that God gives you the desires of your heart, that your desires are God's desires. And then you begin to pray after the heart, the mind, the will, the vision, the mission of God. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So individually, in your individual life, as a family, as a church family, these components are very important, they're very significant, they're simple, that doesn't mean insignificant. The simplest things in life are often the most transformational, the most powerful. And these four things will change your life. Being dedicated to apostolic teaching, being somebody who prioritizes fellowship, the breaking of bread, slowing things down, not allowing yourself to be distracted from real life interaction with other followers of Jesus, having a prayer life that is really one characterized by intimacy with God. You say, I don't even know where to begin. Neither did they. The best way to learn how to pray is to simply show up and begin to be honest with God. That's what prayer is, honesty before Almighty God. God, I don't know where to begin. You can start with the Lord's Prayer as a model, not as a ritual. I say that as a recovering Catholic, okay? It's not a ritual, it's a model. And you will find that in the same way that you learned how to walk and then learned how to run, you will learn how to pray. You will learn how to call out to God and not simply call out to God, but also listen to him. It's important to listen to him based on the word of God, objective as opposed to subjective, because there are times in my life, probably has happened in your life, it's gonna happen in my life, it's gonna happen in your life again as well, where you will hear things that are not necessarily the voice of God. It's important to understand you can have a word from God, I can have a word from God any and every time we want courtesy of the word of God, the Bible. It's objective. And you can base your prayers on the word of God. Lord, this is what you promised to me. Lord, this is what you promised to my family. Lord, this is what you promised to anybody who's willing to take you at your word, and I'm going to take you at your word. I want to focus in here a little bit more about the bizarrity. This is absolutely bizarre. And we don't really understand it because we're so used to living in New Testament times, 2,000 or so years after the time that this was written and after the time this occurred. We don't understand how bizarre it is that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Peter and his brother Andrew, fishermen. James and John, fishermen. Matthew chapter 9. Where was Matthew in Matthew chapter 9? He was at the tax collector's booth. Tax collectors would basically get money from people and pretty much act as extortionists, getting exorbitant sums of money from people, coercing them. And Matthew had to learn by the time he's done with three plus years of time with Jesus that his provision came from the Lord, not from extorting people. 
And Peter and Andrew had to understand that they weren't called to be fishers of fish anymore, but fishers of men, just like James and John, the sons of uproar, sons of tumult, sons of chaos, became mightily used in the hand of God. So if you're somebody who might have a reputation for causing uproar, for causing difficulty, for causing hardship, take heart. There's historic precedent for God using people who had a reputation for causing outbursts, upsetting the apple carts. If you will allow the Spirit of God to get a hold of you, God will cause the name of Jesus to thunder through you. It is a process in the course of your whole life. And all you have to do is, if you want an example, you're looking at one right here. If you go back and you talk to people about my high school days and pre-high school, I even have a report card from kindergarten or first grade where my teacher says right in the report card to my parents, Michael talks too much. (laughs) And not only did I talk too much, but as I got older and Jesus hadn't yet gotten a hold of my heart, there were words that would come out of my mouth frequently, often, characteristically, And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And don't you think it's irony of ironies that here I am by the undeserved favor of God, by the undeserved favor of God, now trying to present to you the word of God so that you can take it, you can digest it, and you can apply it in your own life. I'm just one of countless hundreds of thousands of examples, millions of examples since the time of Pentecost of how God can take an idiot, an idiot, transform that life and make it into something useful and eternally productive for the glory of God. And if God can do that in me, he can do it in you. The apostles' teaching, it's it's almost laughable. None of these guys is a Pharisee. 6,000 of them in Jesus' day. Not one of them was chosen to be an apostle. Peter and Andrew, James and John, fishermen, Matthew, a tax collector, Simon the zealot. You look at these guys, none of them went through the traditional credentialing to be a teacher. None of them is a priest in the temple. And this, we will see in the book of Acts, seems to be a burr under the saddle of the leaders of the day, that these guys, in light of all of those who could have been chosen, these are the guys that Jesus chose to carry on the torch, to be the ones through whom God would do miraculous signs and wonders. Many of them, only some of them are recorded in the book of Acts. The fear of God was falling upon all of the people because God was doing miraculous signs and wonders through those who were known as fishermen, tax collectors. Those were the guys that God Almighty chose. Just like you, look around this room, think about in your mind Those people whom God has called to be representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is never, never, never about the messenger. 
It is always about the message. It is always about the grace and the goodness of Almighty God that God uses regular, ordinary people through whom he can do extraordinary things because Jesus is no ordinary individual. Apostolic teaching, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoting themselves to the fellowship of believers. They were devoting themselves to breaking bread and slowing down and living life together. They were devoting themselves to the prayers. There is a definite article that's used there. They were going up and praying in accordance with the times of prayer that were regularly being offered in the temple area. This is what we see in Acts chapter three when Peter and John are going up to the temple at the time of prayer. That's one of those examples. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And day by day, the Lord was adding to the number those who were coming to recognize that Jesus was and is the anointed and appointed Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament. What does it mean to be devoted? It's really important for us to stop and to really contemplate what does it mean to be devoted because we can think today that we're devoted and yet it's not in the same way that they were devoted as we're reading about right now in Acts chapter two. Oftentimes we want the results of the infilling with the Holy Spirit without understanding the price that must be paid for that filling of the Holy Spirit. Listen, it's all about the undeserved favor of God. That's the word that we use. We use the word grace. It's all undeserved, but grace does come at a cost. Do you understand that? We don't seem to understand that. We think that grace is a license. I can do whatever I want, and then out of the blue, God's gonna show up in my life, move powerfully, No, that's license. That's taking for granted the movement of the Spirit of God. God is not obligated to do anything in your life and my life, but what God does is he shows us ahead of time what kind of life we can expect, what kind of fruit we can expect to be born in our lives if we will align our lives with apostolic teaching, the prioritization of the word of God in our lives in such a way that we're putting the word of God into practice. Look with me at James chapter one. In James chapter one, beginning in verse 21, it says this. James, the brother of Jesus, right? Brother of Jesus says this. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's a difference between cramming more Bible into your cranium and applying the Bible that you know. And this is a fundamental difference of what we see in Acts chapter two compared to, I'm saying this reverentially, 
respectfully, but I must speak the truth in love. This is one of the primary differences between what we're seeing in the book of Acts chapter two and what we are seeing in the majority of churches in the United States of America. We've got far more believers in the United States of America, even if we take away all the nominal believers and strip it down. Far more believers in the United States than they had here in the book of Acts. The difference between how we tend to live our lives as those who say we're Christ followers today and those who we're reading about in Acts chapter two, which helps us understand how Christians actually live, is that these people were not interested in simply a mental assent to understanding who Jesus is. They're not simply interested in education about Jesus. They were hungry, not just for a meal, not just for breaking bread. They were hungry to apply the word of God. They were not simply hearers of the word, but doers. The kingdom of God had come to earth. They were enamored with Jesus. They were humble, understanding whose kingdom it was that they were called to build. They were unified, and God was day by day adding to their number those who were being saved as a direct consequence of them being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to lifestyles of prayer. Look with me again at John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, verse 13, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. So these words probably resonated with Jesus' brother James, as we just read from James chapter 1 seems to be central to the life and the teaching of Jesus, the importance of putting the word of God into action. And today, a great divorce, and by great, I don't mean good, I mean terrible, a terrible divorce has occurred. And I'm not talking about the one that's in process with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about our satisfaction, our complacency, our tolerance. Tolerance is a big buzzword these days. We tolerate separating the application of God's word from knowledge of God's word. That's not biblical. You will never find an acceptable example in scripture where it's applauded, let alone tolerated, that we can have knowledge of the Bible and not put it into action. Look with me at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, verse 27. Jesus was giving a teaching about an unclean spirit, demonic activity, and then in verse 27 of Luke 11, he says this. It says this, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed, to which Jesus responded, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it, or who put it into practice. Would have been a great opportunity for Jesus to promote the worship of his mother, and yet he doesn't do that. He promotes the application of God's word. You know enough about the Bible already to be a Bible teacher in a third world country. 
You know enough in your neighborhood to lead people to Christ already. You say, I don't know where to begin. The Holy Spirit will lead you. You just simply need to make yourself available to the Lord. You know enough to be effective in Awana. You know enough to be effective in our children's ministry, to be effective in our student ministry, to be effective in a senior ministry, in pace setters, to be effective in any and every place that you might go. You already most likely know enough about Jesus and enough about the Bible. If you will simply endeavor to put it into practice, your marriage will undergo a fundamental transformation. You do not have to wait for your spouse to change. You need to change. You need to change, courtesy of the Holy Spirit. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You see, the fundamental thing that was happening in Acts chapter two, which is not simply descriptive, but also prescriptive for us here in Acts 29. We are the 29th chapter of the book of Acts. There's only 28 chapters, literally speaking, in Acts, but we are supposed to be the 29th and the 30th and the 31st, etc. chapters in the book of Acts. The fundamental difference is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to apostolic teaching, to slowing their lives down so that they were centered upon the person and the works of Jesus. They were having fellowship together, having meals together, being devoted to prayer, which is to be devoted to God. And day by day, as they were devoted, God was adding to their number those who were believing what they had come to believe. It is descriptive. It is prescriptive. And we would do well to take it to heart. What does it mean to be devoted? This word, devoted, means to wait on, to be faithful to. That's what it means. To busy one's self with. Get busy with apostolic teaching in your own life, with a bent toward putting it into practice. This is what's happening. This is why they're selling their possessions, giving to the needy. They were getting serious about this Jesus stuff. To be devoted is to wait on, to be faithful to, to busy oneself with, to hold fast to something, to continue to persevere in, to spend much time in. That's what it means to be devoted, to spend much time in. And ultimately, to attach oneself to something. That's what it means. To be devoted is to attach yourself to something. Are you attached to Jesus in this way? Can it be said of your life that you are attached to apostolic teaching, to the prioritization of the kingdom of God, the person and the works of Jesus in your life where everything else is secondary? Can it be said in your life that you are a man a woman, a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a Christian who is attached to Jesus in the ways that we see the early church being attached to Jesus. Don't make the mistake of thinking knowledge is power. It's not. It's the opportunity to be an agent of change. Don't make the mistake of thinking education about the word of God is the same as transformation. Don't do it. Don't make that mistake. And don't 
confuse devotions with being devoted to Jesus. You might call it a quiet time where you're cracking open the word of God, reading the Bible, praying, journaling. Others of us might call it devotions. I had my devotion. I did my devotion. I do my devotions at this time. There's a huge difference between doing your devotions and being devoted to Jesus. And these believers, through whom the Spirit of God was transforming the world, they were attached to Jesus. And we would do well to be attached in the same ways, being dedicated and devoted to apostolic teaching with a bent toward putting it into action, being dedicated to fellowship and the breaking of bread, real FaceTime. It's good to have a movie night as a family, but if that's what you're doing as time together as a family, it's not quality time as a family. If your smartphone is the unwanted, uninvited guest at the dinner table, kill your smartphone. Take back that dinner time, that breaking of bread around the table together. Make it centered upon the person and the works of Jesus. And let God Almighty renovate your prayer life. Dependence upon Almighty God. And you know what? That'll actually change your marriage. It'll change your relationships with other believers and that'll make its way into the church and the church will once again arise victorious, triumphantly and make its way into the world and be the salt and light that God has always called us to be. How about a church? Time to apply what God is speaking to us through his word. been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.